April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast from us here at DSR. This is the first in a new series of podcasts we'll be doing every single week, uh, recording on Mondays. This was the DSR Spy Show, and it is co-hosted by my friend and sometimes recent guest here at DSR, Mark Polymeropoulos, CIA uh, veteran, also uh, recently uh, uh, Morning Joe veteran, MSNBC uh, commentator. How are you doing this morning, Mark? I'm doing great, David. It's good to be here, and I am. Uh, I'm very happy to note that you pronounced my name correctly. So we're gonna we're gonna test you later on if you can spell it backwards. But that's well done. That's the first test in any any time I go on any show is if someone can pronounce my name. So you passed. Well, I'm, can I opt for waterboarding as my second first choice and spelling? Okay. You're going there already. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that's gonna to- be episode five. Yeah. <laughs> Today, um, uh, we have a a special guest, Paul uh, Colby, who uh, is a a longtime CIA veteran, has also provided uh, intelligence and insights for big corporations and led the Intel program uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School for quite some time. I actually am sitting not 20 feet away from the Harvard Kennedy School at this moment. Uh, Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, David. Hey, Mark. Great to see you. Each week, we're going to, on this show, uh, provide perspectives on the news from the perspective of folks with uh, loads of intelligence uh, community experience like these guys. Uh, We think it's uh, a critical component of our increasingly well-rounded list of uh, expert perspectives uh, and something that we know uh, our... um, members and listeners have been uh, wanting for a long, long time. So let me turn it to you, Mark, for the first question to Paul. Sure. And let me let me first say, you know, it's a great honor to have Paul on for a number of reasons. He's one of the most widely respected former intelligence officers kind of uh, amongst this, you know, the crowd we have, um, uh, uh, not only in the D.C. area, but Paul is out in the, in the Midwest now. So uh, tons of respect for him. Um, you know, former station chief, former head of the division that um, that certainly oversaw operations against uh, against Russia, and I think that's we're going to focus quite a bit on that today. But most importantly, just the, one of the one of the nicest guys around, which is not always what you get in our old profession. So I will say that that Paul is one of the good guys. 
Um, but I think that let's 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 jump off and, and you know talk about some current news uh, uh, on Ukraine. And there was there was a piece in the Washington Post yesterday that kind of caught everyone's surprise. And this was one of the you know the exposés that that came out based on the the DoD leaks. But it was the notion that the head of the Wagner Group, the, the Russian paramilitary group, um, which gets a lot of you know press these days, but the head of it, Evgeny Prigozhin, has actually been in secret talks with Ukrainian intelligence, and in one instance, according to the Washington Post, offered to provide uh, positions uh, of, of the Russian military. So this goes, you know, kind of jumping right into where we are in the war in Ukraine. Paul, what do you think of that? Um, I was, you know, my my first inclination is, wow, is that is this is this true? Is it not true? And and then in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, Ukrainian intelligence is pretty damn good, regardless if they're having these kind of back channels. Um, but anyway, your thoughts on the on this this kind of uh, uh, kind of bombshell on on the on the on the Prigozhin information? Well, Mark, straight straight into a wilderness of mirrors, right? So, I, I mean, fr- first point: is, is this accurate or not? Um, very difficult to judge from the outside. Certainly, could be a piece of disinformation designed to undermine or discredit uh, Prigozhin and make the Russians look ridiculous. Um, but as you well know, one of the great advantages of intelligence services is their ability to carry on quiet, under-the-radar conversations with the fiercest of adversaries. You've been involved in many situations where politically countries were at loggerheads or individuals at loggerheads, but quietly behind the scenes, they're having discussions. Sometimes they're feeling each other out. Sometimes each are trying to gain an advantage. Uh, sometimes um, people are trying to play... Uh, another service, say, against their own government. So you could easily imagine that Prigozhin is looking for, A, perhaps an escape route, uh, B, a way to uh, provide influence of his own on Ukraine's actions or to use Ukraine to undermine his own enemies within Russia. For me, the most fascinating part of it is that it reflects the divisions that I think are becoming increasingly exposed of infighting within the Russian intelligence and military and political circles. Um, now, it's an interesting story in and of itself, which, as you say, raises as many questions as it answers. But it's also an interesting story in the context of the increasingly interesting story of Prigozhin, because over the course of the past few uh, weeks, he has spoken out against Putin. He has called Putin a grandpa. He he has, you know, condemned Russia for not providing him with sufficient ammunition. He said he's out. Then he said he's back in. Then he said he was out again. Most recently he said, okay, I'll go in and take Bakhmut, which is essentially at this point, tragically, a big hole in the ground. But then I'll leave it to the, you know, airborne troops to uh, defend what I've taken. Um, what do you what do you what do you make of this kind of contentious relationship between Prigozhin and his former you know bestie and sponsor Putin? I, I mean, it reminds me of a, uh, of a an untrained, unreliable attack dog. So used used for particular situations, quite convenient uh, for a long time. Prigozhin. I mean, let's go back to where we first started hearing the name Prigozhin. It was with the uh, uh, Internet Research Agency um, and the sponsorship of the hacking uh, that that uh, particular outfit did, most notably and notoriously of the Democratic National Committee. 
um, uh, uh, back in 2016 and its efforts to uh, uh, hack into U.S. systems and to affect the 2016 election. But Prigozhin also has been very active in Africa with uh, mercenaries deployed there in Libya, Central African Republic, uh, elsewhere. Um, so he's been a very useful tool uh, for the Russian government, deniable set of uh, plausibly deniable, implausibly deniable set of uh, capabilities. When it shifted to conventional warfare and the massive expansion um, of the Wagner Group and its activities in Ukraine, uh, initially was seen as you know maybe a, a sharp knife that could be used, uh, but ended up becoming quite a blunt instrument. And it's <laughs> you saw the videos of him being uh, in Russian prisons, recruiting prisoners, saying, "Look, we'll get you out of prison. Uh, you may die in six months, but if you don't, you know you're good to go." Um, so he's been very useful but increasingly volatile and unreliable. It's a heck of an offer, really. <laughs> you know. It's remarkable videos of it, you know, his his pitch to the to, to the uh, uh, prisoners. So yeah. one of the things on this is you know why you know does this first of all does this matter in terms of what is what is really uh, the biggest issue at hand now which is the counteroffensive. You know, I mean some argue that it has started already um, that shaping operations uh, you know have begun. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and of course, when you talk about David mentioned Bakhmut, um, it's a, it's a, you know, arguably unimportant strategically, uh, uh, location, but Ukrainians for some time have really pushed the notion that we're going to bleed the Russians, uh, as much as possible there. And, and I think one of the things that is, that is interesting is that you saw, particularly in the American media, a lot of criticism, and this is, you know, ostensibly leaks from the administration that this was the wrong strategy, the Ukrainians um, uh, we're, we're using, but it turns out it may have been correct. And so two things on that one, one, Paul, I think that, you know, both you and I were case officers for the, for the agency and then also did some time at headquarters. But I always, you know, one of the things that in David and I talking about this show in particular, we're going to have a lot uh, of guests on, um, like yourself, who was in the field. So you actually, you know, have a different view of things, you know, it, you know, if you were not retired and, you know, enjoying your, uh, your retirement now, you, you know, you can make an argument, you would actually be, in or around Ukraine, you might be working with our partners there. And, and, you know, I think their their view of things is always going to be a little bit different than what officials in the National Security Council uh, are thinking. And that's OK. You know, two views are important. Um, but I think it's it, it's you know, it, it's good to note that uh, the, the view from the field is actually really important. Um, so, you know, overall, uh, uh, what's your what's your sense on on the offensive? Um, you know, it, it, has it started? What are the what are the goals? And then most importantly, is is do you dispute the notion that you hear again a lot that you know the administration is going to is going to um, uh, really take a look at whether the Ukrainians are successful or not in terms of future support? That's kind of a, a narrative that's out there as well. That again, from a field person like myself, uh, that that, uh, that annoys me quite a bit. Um, so your thoughts? Yeah. Well, as as you, as you know, Mark, there's there's an awful lot of opinions and an awful lot of uninformed commentary and a lot of armchair experts um, out there. And w well, the one phrase with that is constantly used in the press, which just drives me out of my mind, is when they describe Bakhmut as strategically unimportant. So in 1863, summer of 1863. Nobody had ever heard of Gettysburg. It was not a strategically important location, but it became a fulcrum on which the war turned, right? Because forces concentrated and met there in a decisive battle. Now, is Bakhmut that decisive battle as Gettysburg? That's probably pulling it a little too far, but there's no doubt that it was strategically important for 
Putin and for Russia um, for lots of reasons. One, the simple amount of forces and the persistence. This fight has been going on for a year in, over, over Bakhmut. It's been the most intense warfare, the most concentrated warfare of the entire campaign. Um, and just as uh, before the war, when there were a lot of doubters of Ukraine's capability and its military, and who, believers that Kiev would fall in three days, uh, and that Ukraine wouldn't put up much of a fight, same is held true with Bakhmut. Lots of, uh, I think, defeatism of saying, well, oh, and advice, gratuitous advice to Zelensky, pull out, pull back, you can't hold it, it's not important, you're wasting your resources. Well, the resources that got wasted and wasted over and over again were Russians, Russian soldiers, Russian prisoners, Russian ammunition, short supplies. It became a crucible in which uh tremendous amount of Russian resources, men, and equipment were wasted. Um, and now you see local counteroffensives in and around Bakhmut, which are taking advantage of just what Ukraine wanted to do, exhausted, demoralized, badly led troops. You know, it, 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 just the way Mark framed that question brings one to mind. And, um, you talk about armchair experts, and you know that's the role I play on this podcast. You know, John, but Mark, 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 Mark's the guy out there. I've always been the Washington policy guy. Um, but um, you know, this war, this phase of the war, because we all, we we should always remind our listeners and ourselves that this is a war that's now in its tenth year. Um, uh, but um, this this phase of the war began with some interesting and unexpected um, um, maneuvers on the uh, intel front, us sharing intel, us making it public, us using intel as a kind of a, a weapon, which I think in general the agency got kudos for, the administration got kudos for. But I think the average listener has to wonder, you know, we talk about tanks, we talk about F-16s, we talk about attackums. What is the West providing to Ukraine in the way of intel support? Now, obviously, we can't be specific, but it's, 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 I, I just think it puts it in some context. Um, and, 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 and again, I'm not asking, you know, for people to talk about things that they shouldn't, but in, instead to say, um, what might Ukraine expect from us? What might we be able to provide that augments their capabilities on the shadow side of our support? So speaking just from what's appeared in public, it's clear that not just the U.S., but uh, all of Ukraine's allies and supporters in this effort have been able to provide Ukraine with both strategic and tactical intelligence. So you pointed out one of the most important pieces, the warning, sorry about that, with the warning that uh, one of the most important pieces that Ukraine received, both strategic and quite specific warning of Russia's plans and intentions to attack. That's absolutely remarkable. It's rare 
and Mark can corroborate this, it's rare that you actually, you might have strategic warning. 9-11, we had strategic warning. We knew 9-11. We knew that Al-Qaeda was going to attack us, that they wanted to, that they had the intention to. We didn't have the specific time and date. In this case, we had the specific time and date and how they were going to invade down to this airborne uh, uh, company is going to be heading to Hostomal Airport uh, to secure a beachhead, as it were. Um, I would hope that that's continuing uh, throughout the course of the war. I don't know. So, I, I mean, I think so. And, and it's probably matured as well. I think probably that, you know, the, the administration has gotten more comfortable um, in, in passing even kind of intelligence, even more granularity. You know, there's been a lot in the press about, about you know, targeting um, and how deep we are in uh, uh, to that. But there's, there's no doubt that um, that the, I think the U.S. intelligence community has played a, an, an enormous role now. I mean, you can make, you know, the, look, the U.S. military is not on the ground uh, in, in Ukraine. So, you know, you can, you can make the quip, and I've, I've said this often, I don't know if it's true or not, but I get a sense it is that, you know, the combatant command for the United States uh, uh, in this war is Langley is the agency. And, and that's something that exactly is in line with President Biden's goals of keeping U.S. boots um, uh, out of Ukraine and, and, and you know, on, on the issue of especially, you know, managing that the, the, the question or the worry about escalation with Russia. But I think going back to, to something and, and think back in your career on this, Paul, um, you know, one of the things that I, that, I, that I always thought was fascinating is on February of last year, you know, when uh, when the Russians, it looked like they were going to invade. It's not like Zelensky had to had to call Langley. He had to call CIA headquarters. He actually just had to go down the road to, to the U.S. embassy uh, or to wherever uh, you know uh, U.S. officials um, had been there for a long time. Because guess what? And you know this goes into the notion of what we do in the intelligence community. Um, there was a long term investment in Ukraine started back in 2014, eight years um, uh, or you know or, or, or plus. Uh, prior to the invasion, um, it's the notion of, you know, what we do and kind of what I call defending forward. Um, uh, it's investing in partners. And so, you know, the, 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 the intelligence community spent a lot of time and effort in Ukraine um, uh, at, at a time, you know, when we had uh, a, a lot of folks on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, other places. This was kind of the non-sexy conflict, to use a pretty horrible term for it. But, but boy, it paid off. And so... You know, give a sense of, of in your career and what I call, you know, how, how we put in the plumbing um, overseas for contingencies like this. Um, you know, did you, do you agree with that notion in the sense that, that Ukraine was, was a success story, not just on how we reacted, but the fact that, that we were there for years and years and really invested in those relationships? No, 100% right. This is not an overnight success story. Um, it, it does reflect, you know, deep, long engagement um, at many different levels, right? So uh, you talk about the dime paradigm where you need both diplomacy, intelligence, military, and economic engagement. Um, and where we fail, it's when those things aren't put together. So intelligence is always an important piece of it. It's never the only piece of it. Um, and, uh, us is both, you know, we, we often fall prey to, uh, kind of the hubris of thinking that, you know, we're, we're the one key that, that, that makes things work. I, I'd go back and point out too, that Ukraine has, while their, their military has been extraordinarily capable, resourceful, resilient, and adaptive. Um, I would argue that you probably have the same, uh, characteristics reflected with the Ukrainian intelligence services. Um, you look at the job that they did have done in um, in uh, uh, preventing sabotage and in shutting down Russian networks. And you know well that the Russians will have 
for decades worked to deeply penetrate the Ukrainian intelligence services, viewed them as, you know, essentially a vassal service in their own mind, in the same way that they viewed the country, um, and viewed it as sort of their wholly owned subsidiary. Um, but it's clear that the uh, Ukraine has uh, built a, a uh, strong, resilient, and effective set of their own intelligence capabilities. You know, it's it's interesting just as a as an as an observer of these things, and as somebody who's written a little bit about them over time. Um, I, I personally don't think our response in 2014, when all this started, was very strong. Uh, there was a lot of internal debate about, you know, in fact, I remember one meeting, which I've mentioned before, where somebody came from a meeting, somebody who's now very senior in the government came from a meeting and said, I was just in a debate about whether we should provide them with blankets or meals ready to eat, you know, and it was not, you know, we weren't going to do anything particularly strong. Uh, so we did want to, you know, we, we tried to come up with things that weren't that visible. And, and there were two things that weren't that visible that we were able to provide them with. And one was training for their military, particularly sort of down the line training like sergeants and so forth that broke them out of the Warsaw Pact paradigm and into our own. And the other was Intel. And both have proven to be incredibly useful nine years later, right? Both have proven to be incredibly useful by accident. It wasn't the plan, but they, they, they have, they have paid off. Going back to the Prigozhin, uh, uh, comments that a, a bit earlier, uh, you know, another thing this all echoes and, and both of you may have thoughts on this, but another thing this all echoes is, you know, Russia in Afghanistan, Russia goes in, they have a lot of hubris. They've got a lot of big forces. They think this is going to go well. And uh, of course, of course, it doesn't. When that happened with Russia and Afghanistan, it led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. It led to the end of administrations. There's been a lot of talk about what this might do to Putin's reign. What's it going to do to Putin's reign, Paul? <laughs> well, it's don't have a crystal ball. Um, but uh, wars that end badly for uh, and Russia have not have also ended badly um, for Russian leaders uh, historically. Look, I mean, he staked his entire credibility uh, on this uh, misadventure, um, and it's been a spectacular failure. Uh, it's a failure militarily. It's a failure economically. Russia is not poised to thrive uh, uh, for the rest of the 21st century. Um, while sanctions have not were not effective in deterring. Uh, uh, attack. They are having an increasingly corrosive, erosive effect on Russia's capability to continue to fund uh, the war, to create the supplies needed to prosecute the war, particularly if it's going to be a long one. The advantage that Russia has and that they will always fall back on um, is in terms of what uh, run Russian general told me before the war, retired general told me just before the war, um, we're prepared to suffer more than you are. Uh, and Russians have this um, national sense of we can put up with anything, we can put up with privation in order to outlast um, our uh, our uh, enemies. And that's why Putin keeps trying to draw parallels back with World War II. Um, you know, Russia lost 27 million citizens to in the course of World War II, um, most of them at the hands of their own leaders, not at the hands of the Nazis and, and Hitler. Um, that being said, they were prepared to suffer. 
um, and I see that that is still being called in and uh, 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 called into play. Um, so I don't think anyone can be complacent that this war is going to be suddenly over um, in a miraculous Ukrainian counteroffensive over the course of the next few months. Um, I fear that it's going to drag on for some time. As long as it drags on, Putin will stay in power unless he's taken out from within, and I don't see any signs of that. Not that I would. One of the things that I think is uh, is fascinating, and, and there's a lot of undercurrents um, kind of in our little weird kind of, David, you're, you're certainly a, a member of this too, the kind of the DC blob. Uh, when you talk about, you know, what is discussed um, at the White House, the National Security Council in, in policy meetings, and, and that is the notion, uh, there's always this ever-present fear of, of, you know, Russian catastrophic collapse in the sense of, you know, is Putin better as the, as the devil we know? And, and to me, uh, I, and I understand that you, we have to have those discussions. You know, what if, uh, what if, uh, uh, you know, Putin does, does fall? You have a, you have a country with, uh, with nuclear weapons that's unstable. And that's always in the back of people's minds. Probably, I would say that, you know, Bill Burns, who is a, you know, former ambassador, he's a Russian speaker. He knows Putin very well. He's probably thinking about these things. Um, at the same time, though, I do wonder if this inhibits, uh, uh, you know, provision of additional um, uh, weapons and armaments that actually could lead to a a, a more resounding Ukrainian um, re Ukrainian results on the battlefield. And so, you know, I want to pose Paul this question to you because, as someone who's been in the field, so you would have been on that end working with the Ukrainians, um, giving them or wanting to give them all that they need, seeing your partners who's you know, whose, whose family members have been killed or who are in, you know, in, in, in underground bunkers as there are these kamikaze drones coming. Um, so you have that field perspective, but also you understand from being a division chief at CIA, you probably would be at a National Security Council meeting where these questions um, do deserve to be considered. So what's your view on that? You know, the idea of a fear of a, of a catastrophic collapse, should that really dominate um, or affect, uh, you know, what we do for Ukraine, in particular, in things such as, you know, long-range missiles, S-16s, and others, where a lot of people do think that can make a difference. Well, look, yeah, I mean, and, you know, many different scenarios have to be considered, you know, as policy is being made. Um, and catastrophic collapse, you know, would be one of them. Uh, you know, I'd look to the intelligence assessments and, and wider um, historical analogies of, you know, when have you seen catastrophic collapse within Russia. So you can go back to Russian Civil War, um, Bolshevik Revolution. Um, uh, people will try to draw analogies with Yugoslavia. I don't think they're necessarily accurate. So it, it's a it's a factor. But I think the what what the question begs is is going back to, you know, what were the some of the causes of the war? And I and I think there's there's often hear the argument, well, you know, the West is to blame, and many make it, the West was to blame for it because of its actions, uh, because of NATO expansion, because we disrespected Russia, because we tried to hold them down economically. You you know, in fact, in the course of the 90s, we poured billions of dollars into Russia to try to bolster the economy, to try to help with their disarmament of nuclear and chemical weapons, to pull them close to NATO. They were part of NATO ship partner for, partners for peace uh, program. Uh, we completely unilaterally disarmed with regards to intelligence collection on Russia. Uh, we focused post 9-11 on the counterterrorism wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and uh, politically, we pretended Russia didn't exist. 
Um, and there was a point where, you know, each president that came through each new administration, Bush, Clinton, Obama, uh, uh, thought that they could engage with Russia positively when that failed, uh, when they got talked to the hand, then they tended to ignore it and push off to other problems. And there was a mantra that, you know, Russia doesn't matter except for how it impacts other third party or peripheral interests. So I would argue that it's not what we did that caused this war. It's what we didn't do. We didn't establish deterrence after the invasion of Georgia. We didn't respond, as David noted, effectively at all after Russia's invasion, occupation of Crimea and eastern Ukraine in 2014. We didn't provide the clear lines, the clear boundaries for Russian behavior. Um, and we didn't, uh, we didn't engage as positively enough as we could have. We didn't have the proper, uh, uh combination of carrots and sticks. Instead, we, uh, drifted off looking at other problems. Yeah. It, you know, I, uh, listening to your, uh, description of history there, we, we do have to note that one bold thinker, uh, was our, our last president, Donald Trump, had tried to turn us into Trumpistan, uh, a subsidiary of Russia, which is a whole different approach, but, uh, We'll skip over that and the, the cheap politics associated with it. And uh, as soon as we get back from this mini break, we'll talk about a recent development past few days that could be really a big deal. And uh, frankly, I don't think is getting covered that way in the press. Uh, but first, this is the point where in each of our DSR podcasts, we say goodbye to those of you in the general public who haven't yet become members uh, and say you should become members. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership for $5 a month. You get this increasing, expanding lineup of podcasts. There'll be major podcasts every single day of the week. Um, and you'll get to listen to all of them, uh, which you don't if you're not a member. So go do that. And then you'll be able to come back and listen to what is about to follow for our members stand by 